0: Then I was about 25 years old, I was uh, busted and into jail and it was there that I came to the Lord. History Makers with Matt Prater. Hi and welcome to History Makers, I'm Matt Prater. Today we're speaking with Dr Stuart Robinson, he's a pastor and author and he's travelled all over the world. We're going to hear a bit of his story today. Welcome along Stuart, tell us uh, a bit of your background, where were you born and raised? I was born in the
1: Royal Women's Hospital in Brisbane, Hurston, and I grew up in the suburb of Lindham, which is no longer in existence. Uh, it's on the edge of Wynnum.
0: Okay, and did you have a uh, religious upbringing at all?
1: No, not at all. Uh, there's no trace of any Christians uh, in my family. I traced it back for five years and couldn't find anything.
0: And tell us about your, uh, your testimony then. Did you come to Christ at a young age, or how did it all happen?
1: Uh, it was in my final years high school, where uh, a close friend who was a Christian that I'd met in high school, he invited me along to the cinema one Sunday night. In those days, of course, there was no cinema, but I thought there would be. He said the cinema, but it was a, in a picture theatre, which has since burned down in the suburb, and there was no movies. There was just this preacher guy, uh, Dr. Edwin Orr, and he was speaking. I didn't have a clue about his uh, what he was talking about because of all his religious language, which I couldn't understand. But uh, long story short, I made a commitment that night and uh, went from there.
0: And was there a big change in your life after that? Uh, not immediately. It was it was slow because.
1: Uh, so I had no no amazing Christian background or anything, and I, I had no guidance on what I had to do after that. But in those days, there was no concept of follow-up or anything. So I was just told to pray, read a Bible, go to church, and witness, and I didn't know what any of those things meant. <laughs> but I managed I managed to find a Bible in the one Christian bookshop, which was in Brisbane. That was a Gospel Walk Depot, up on the 4th floor of a building in town, and I started, it took me a couple of weeks to work through the introduction of that King James Bible, <laughs> so it was a slow journey of self-discovery.
0: Wow, and tell us about your early church experiences, what was it like starting to go to church back at, back in that day?
1: Uh, well, I thought they were kind of like a lot of weirdos, and they probably thought even more so of me, I remember. <laughs> Once I rode my motorbike into the church, and I, I learned you're not supposed to do that. I later spoke with the pastor and said, "Yo, I was so outrageous in those early days. Why didn't you kick me out? He said, Stuart, he said, I can see that you're like a wild stallion, a young horse. If I put the bit between your mouth too early, you just jump the fence and flee. So I decided to extend grace, which he did. <laughs> he, he became my father-in-law. I stole his daughter.
0: Oh, wow. That's a great story. <laughs> And um, tell us a bit about your early career. What kind of work were you doing back in those days? Uh,
1: after high school, uh, I went to university at night because we were poor and I had to earn some money to support the family and uh, an older brother who's doing medicine. But I, I went to University of Queensland, and initially my first degree was in uh, psychology. I wanted to... Uh, do that because I thought there's a lot of money to be made there. Most of the nation's mad, so I'll be kept busy. That was my secular training until God called me into ministry after some years, and then I uh, went to the Queensland Baptist College.
0: Okay, and you uh, you started in ministry after that. What was your first taste of ministry like after Bible College?
1: It was, it was uh, interesting because halfway through my training there, suddenly in a, an amazing way, God redirected me toward missions. And uh, overseas, so when I completed my uh, Bible college stuff, I then had to do a year in a church to qualify for ordination, and that was at Albion Baptist Church. It was my first experience, there were a few hundred members in that church, and as a 26-year-old who <laughs> thought he knew, knew a few things, I became the pastor there, but it was only for 12 months, and uh, then I uh, went overseas.
0: Well, you wouldn't believe it. I just caught up with the pastor of Albion Baptist Church about three weeks ago. What a small world, hey?
1: Wow, they're still in existence, yeah. even after my being there.
0: <laughs> yeah, he he did mention something about you just quietly, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, you, you spent many years uh, in missions. Uh, give us a bit of a snapshot of what that was like.
1: Okay, well, uh, we're, we're in South Asia, in a very uh, the world's poor, poorest country, and this was a country, the area of which in which uh, William Kerry, the father of English speaking missions, he started in that area two hundred years previously. And, uh, but he did all of his work amongst Hindus, and the country now is Islamic. And so when I arrived there, there were, no one uh, was doing anything about Muslims, and they would never had any conversions amongst Muslims uh, for the, the last couple of hundred years. I mean, there might have been a handful over the years. But uh, that was what I was called to do, to, uh, to plant churches amongst Muslims. But no one knew how to do it. And so we were dependent on God to start a new movement of contextualization uh, of uh Christianity into an islamic uh way, and and we saw God do amazing things there. Uh, But unfortunately, just as we were really getting along, seeing new historical things happening all the time, I was called back to Australia, and oh no, no, I don't (laughs) want to do that. I considered that God was throwing me onto the scrap heap of Australia, and I confessed to him I'm a poor missionary, I'm a lousy sinner, but why would you punish me so much (laughs) by making me go back to Australia? And I didn't know why I was coming back until after I arrived back, then he should me. Uh,
0: and not only Australia, you actually got sent to Melbourne Is that right? Yeah, and I and I said distinctly to
1: the Lord I said, Lord, I've been in Melbourne I know that so many of these big bluestone churches They're all empty They've got loads of churches there They've got more pastors than they've got churches Why the heck should I go there? Anyway, that was my argument I didn't win it
0: <laughs> And I've heard you share a bit of the story Of uh, being involved in Crossway Baptist Church There was a lot of prayer behind the scenes And uh, and for me as a pastor, it inspired me to get back on my knees and to have more prayer meetings and to, you know, have more of a DNA of prayer in my church. Just want to share with us about the the DNA of prayer at Crossway.
1: Yeah, well, you see, my problem was I didn't know how you're supposed to minister in Australia. I'd been away for a long time all I could do was pray. And then the Lord revealed to me uh, after years of doing this, of course, we, he showed me where the land would be, what the buildings would be. And this is all going to cost millions and millions of dollars and I had no money. So I, I certainly learned to advance on my knees. And uh, as the church was later established, I had a goal that we would establish 24 seven prayer in that place. And we ended up the final building we built was a chapel capable of holding uh, a couple of hundred people. And it was to be the prayer center of everything because I had learned from my situation uh, working in Asia that nothing of significance ever happens unless it's based on prayer. And uh, that's all I had. So, of course, I'd learned from other countries that I'd travel through where you find persevering prayer, you can find miraculous stuff. And I'd learned to trust the God of the miraculous, not just to talk about him or even say I believed him, but actually trust him to do impossible things. And so I set in place uh, that the church would have this place of prayer in its life. We even uh, appointed a pastor exclusively for prayer. And uh, so... every day starting at 6am or sometimes at 4am or 3am or wherever the prayer would start through the day and that continued on growing and that was the basis of everything which happened in that church because all around us in our area here uh, churches dying, and that was normal across the nation, but God calls this place to, uh, in my time there, and this took 25 years, to grow to 5,000 before I handed it over to the next generation, but uh, it didn't have much to do with me. It had a whole lot to do with prayer, and of course, I've written a little bit about that uh, in one of the smallest but most effective books that i ever written, and that was called The Prayer of Obedience.
0: Now, I've been impacted by uh, some of your books over the years. Um, we, we talked about your time as a missionary um, where you talked a lot about, uh, you know, reaching the, the Muslim people. And, you know, you wrote a book called Mosques and Miracles. Um, let's yeah. talk through a few of your books. So Mosques and Miracles, what, what's, the, what's the heart behind that one? Uh,
1: the Heart in Mosques and Miracles, that was a 30-year Uh, investigation or research project, and then took four years to write. It starts, it's a book in three parts, firstly telling people, this is what's happening around the world. You have to understand it because most people don't know what's going on. The second part is why it's happening. That's the theology, the Muslim theology behind that. And the third part of it is, okay, here's the Christian response. This is what God is doing. Here's the way we can tap into that. And uh, so that became a bestseller of, uh, I don't know, over 100,000 or so of that has gone on.
0: And, and we're hearing lots of stories of Muslims having a vision of Jesus and coming to Christ around the world. Um, isn't it mind-blowing what, God, what, what God's doing in, in, uh, in the Muslim world?
1: yes it 's happening in particular areas, uh, places even like Afghanistan or Iran and so forth and this is happening, I think, because when these nations through the the hostilities which occurred there and the the revolutions and so forth, the attention of Christians is gathered and focused on praying those places. And it's in response to prayer, I think, that the Spirit of God is being released there supernaturally. So uh, visions and uh, dreams, uh, the appearance of Jesus, angelic happenings, all these sort of things are in play there. And you know, uh, yeah, we we wish to happen in our own nation, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually prayed for a guy from Iran once, who uh, was out here at a detention center, I prayed for him and his knee was healed. And he said, how'd you do that? And I said, well, I believe in Jesus. And, and I gave him a Bible in Farsi in his local tongue. And he started reading it. He gave his heart to Jesus, you know. And then he said every night uh, he would read the Bible and then go to sleep. And then Jesus would visit him in his dreams. And he had a beard, <laughs> dressed in white, and he'd take him on a journey. And, you know, and he's full on for Jesus now. And, you know, it's the easiest evangelism ever because Jesus loves the Muslim people, doesn't he?
1: He certainly does. And they're so easy to talk to. They're, they're so more religiously minded than the hardened, materialistic, secularized Western person is. Yeah. And they will end just about every sentence with the the phrase, Inshallah, that is, if God wills it. That's a God consciousness wow. that they have. Way beyond the level that we have.
0: Mm, so good, and there was a a famous court case in Melbourne many years ago with your church, with uh, Pastor Daniel Scott, um, who was hauled before the courts uh, for teaching about the difference between Christianity Christianity and Islam. Just want to give us a quick snapshot of what that uh, you know that, that went on for years, didn't it?
1: Yes, that happened about uh, 2001, I think. And uh, what happened there was Daniel and another pastor, D- Danny Nalia, who'd lived in uh, Saudi Arabia for some time. Both of them uh, came, and they were doing this little seminar, and it was it was okay. They were just quoting the Quran and so forth. But the Victorian Islamic Council had sent along a couple of uh, recent converts young ladies who didn't know much about islam and they were shocked and horrified when they heard what these guys were saying which was just this is what the the sacred texts say so they reported back and then that resulted in uh oh one of these laws came in hate speech and discrimination all that sort of stuff and it took five years before the matter was resolved it ended in a draw uh, the thing cost about five hundred, a uh, million dollars. Uh, both sides paid their, their share, so it was $500,000 down the drain. But, uh, yeah, at least we got a bit of freedom of speech out of it.
0: Yeah, a, a massive uh, landmark court case that was. And I know you've written yeah. many books on, on the issues, uh, for example, The Hidden Half about women and Islam. Uh, you've written a book called Islam Rising, The Middle East and Us, and, uh, of course, Moss and Miracles, like we said. But I'm curious to know about this other one you released recently uh, recently called Daring to Disciple, Making Jesus' Last Command Our First Priority. I love that uh, byline. Now, tell us about Daring to Disciple.
1: Well, the thesis is, this is the way I've always worked privately, that where I got the most help as a new Christian was not in the local church because you go and you you sit in the church and you listen to the, the preachers and you sing the hymns and all that, but but that's not the, the stimulus for growth. You only start to grow spiritually as you obey what you're hearing, as it, the thoughts are transferred from mind to heart and that's the essence of discipleship. But in churches, we, that is evangelical churches, we place the emphasis on conversion. Yes, get a person conversion again, sitting in a church, and they never multiply, they never grow. But in my life, I I came across a guy who actually discipled me and we've been in touch now for over 50 years and discipleship is what it's all about, a lifelong relationship of sowing into the other's life till they reproduce and so I wrote this book because this is the heart behind and what happened in uh, church in Melbourne, I didn't set out to see people converted, I set out to see them as multiplied disciples and so daring to disciple has got a fair bit of me in it and and, uh, the, the theories and the practice are all in there.
0: And I know that Crossway uh, Church that you, you pastored for many years are now doing coaching of other churches. Um, I've actually yeah. been coached by Edie Stevenson and uh, a group oh. from our church uh, for BDC, Building a Discipleship Culture. And uh, yeah. it's been life-changing for us because we really want to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, and I could keep going. That's That's the heart of it, isn't yeah. it?
1: That's it, exactly. And uh, I commend that to, to any pastor, especially, because uh, that's what Jesus said to do, to make disciples. He didn't say make converts. He said make disciples. And that's a, a slightly different thing, but it it's uh, hugely important. And I think one of the reasons churches plateaued is because we have satisfied ourselves at stopping at the conversion thing. Of course, conversion is necessary and vital and primary importance, but it's not the be all and the end all. It's is what we're on about.
0: Now, Stuart, before we finish up, you know, I I just had a sense that there might be people listening to this right now that have become a bit dry in their walk with God, and they might have heard you talk about prayer a bit earlier in the interview and thought, oh, yeah, I need to get back to the secret place. I need to get back to having a relationship of prayer with Jesus. Um, Would you just throw out a challenge to anyone listening, you know? What do you do in your prayer time, and how can we get the fire back in our prayer life?
1: Okay. Well, you know, you won't always have the fire. To be realistic, you do have dry times in your life, but you keep going. It's a matter of discipline, and it starts with a daily quiet time, and that daily quiet time needs to be the first thing in the day. You'd never go through, through the day without having breakfast, and you shouldn't go through a day without first meeting with the Lord and taking in His Word. In my particular case, you asked about, I normally get out of bed about then between three and four o'clock in the morning, and I start then... That's it's quiet for me because no one's going to interrupt me much at that time of the day. And that sets the foundation for the whole day. So, uh, But it starts there with that daily quiet time, reading the Bible, and then what is in the Bible, applying that. Obedience is the key thing, not just reading, but obedience. We, we take in thoughts into our minds, but obedience is a matter of the heart. And it's in obedience that really causes us to grow and uh, Take steps forward
0: mm, Well it's been inspirational to hear a bit Of your story today and if people want to Find out more the website is Drstuartrobertson.com And that's Stuart spelt S-T-U-A-R-T Drstuartrobertson.com You can uh, check out the books And uh, I know you're still travelling around Doing a bit of preaching if people want to you know, Invite you to, to come I know that you, you love To get around and share the good news Dr Stewart. it's been wonderful catching up with you I reckon you're a history maker thanks for joining us